Take your Bibles, if you have one in hand, or the Bible in front of you, the pew rack, and open it up to Colossians chapter 2. We'll read from verses 16 through 23 in a moment. Injurious pests. Injurious pests. That's what John Calvin called them. Pests that do spiritual injury. Injury to God's purposes and plans and his people. Injury done in his name. Paul, to this point in the letter, as we've been working through it, has been proclaiming the high supremacy of Jesus Christ, his preeminence. And he has said that all spiritual wisdom and understanding, all spiritual fullness is found in Christ alone. Christ is the one who fills us with God himself. Christ takes all of our sins and they are nailed to his cross and taken away. Christ, it is through him, his death and his resurrection, that spiritual surgery is done on our hearts. And as Jesus was stripped of his dignity and made to be ashamed on the cross by Satan, through his resurrection, he stripped Satan of his authority and his power and put him to open shame. All spiritual fullness is found in Jesus Christ. So what are these pests that we're going to read about? How do they pester the people of God? Do they outright deny that Christ has done all of this? Do they try to tempt Christians with worldly pleasures? Or do they have some other trick, a trick perhaps so sneaky that they may not even perceive that it is at work in them and on them? What do they do and what should we do about them? And what should we do when we find that we are them? Spiritual fullness is found in Christ and Christ alone. Therefore, verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. And if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul has been circling like a plane this issue round and again beginning of chapter two he said he struggles for them that their hearts would be encouraged that they would not be deluded by plausible arguments verses later he said see to it that no one takes you captive and now what is that captive taking problem we're going to call it the problem of add-on christianity the problem of add-on christianity in verses 16 through 17 if you look down 
We've got people telling Christians they need to add some Old Testament lists to their grocery list and Old Testament dates to their calendar and judging them if they don't. Little Christian regulations, officers condemning Christian houses for being out of line, but they're reading their Bibles wrong. We'll call that ultra-biblical Christianity. Then in verses 18 through 19, we've got people having all kinds of special spiritual experiences and elevated, maybe elitist worship and going on and on about them, feigning humility and disqualifying others who don't have these levels of worship to their faith. And we'll call that ultra-spiritual Christianity. And then in verses 20 through 23, we've got people whose Christianity is dominated by do's and don'ts, lists who insist that others need these rules to their lives, rules that they have often added, explaining how wise the lists are for holding back sin, and we'll call that ultra-pure Christianity. This passage we have read belongs to a special class of scripture which theologians have called a can of worms. Okay? Can of worms is a technical term that goes back to about 1950 when fishermen would pick themselves up a can filled with worms and dirt. And as they would open the can and set it on the ground, if they waited too long, they wouldn't be fishing, they would be baiting. They wouldn't be catching fish, but they'd be catching bait. The the, the bait goes all over the place. Well, that's sort of what a paragraph like this is, is is it not? Our thoughts run as we hear it in a whole variety of directions. I cannot tell you how paralyzing it is for a preacher to pause and to consider all the ways that a person in the room might hear this paragraph and any particular line I might say this morning. We imagine this person and and that opinion they have or that sermon that was strong on that topic that we liked or didn't like. And we think of that church that's famous for, for that issue, maybe our church in this or that respect. We think of ourselves, different times and ourselves now. And people feel different ways about these worms coming out of the can. You may feel provoked, defensive, or already misunderstood Maybe you've been accused of being judgmental or being a legalist and you didn't like that. And maybe it's true or maybe it's not true, but the topic usually provokes some frustration for you. Or maybe you feel nervous. These worms make you uneasy and you avoid this topic. You generally do all you can to pacify the judgmental and you're hoping I won't make someone mad. And I hope that I won't make someone mad. I will do my best to be true to the word of God. And if it makes someone mad, then so be it. Pray, I'm faithful with the Bible this morning. And you may feel reassured. You felt pressure from watching eyes in the sharp opinions of others. And you're somewhat tortured, for example, by what to wear to church to avoid a look or a comment that you've gotten before maybe here or maybe somewhere else, maybe from others in your life that you know now or others in your past. And the words, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one disqualify you are a balm to your weary and tired soul as though God knows what you need to hear. 
And it feels good to know that someone, the very spirit of God is watching out for you to notice and offer you these, these words of comfort. Well, whatever the case, this is going to be great for us as a church. This morning, we're gonna take a 50,000 look at this paragraph and then we're gonna work our way through it over the next few weeks. And as we do, I'm praying for myself, I'm praying for you and I'm praying for us that God would grant to us as a church spiritual vision, each of us spiritual vision. This is a subject, is it not, that is famous for more heat than light. And by that, I mean strong emotions, often without a depth of strong, careful reflection, spiritual talk and fervor without spiritual sight. And by way of disclosure as to what exactly is going on in Colossae, we aren't exactly sure. There's a lot of debate over what's called the Colossian heresy. Paul is coming after a problem here. And he's, he's specific in some ways and not in others. Is it a unified system of teaching? Is it an early form of a movement that popped up years later called Gnosticism that's, that's obsessed with uh, secret knowledge? There seem to be hints at that could be corrected in this book. Or is it a blend of problems that Paul has had some experience with before with other churches and which are in the mix of the local religious soup at Colossae? Angel worship, an obsession with experience, rulemaking, and a mishandling of the Old Testament in the Bible. That's, that's my take. It's a, it's a syncretistic situation where you've got a couple things going on in the local religious environment that are not uncommon to any religious environment because of the nature of the human heart. And so Paul is addressing them. The point in saying that we aren't sure exactly what's going on, that we don't have the nitty gritty of what's going on in Colossae is simply to say that apparently God has not given us more than this. Maybe he's given us enough in principle not to be off, taken off track by particulars that Paul might give to get us off the hook. We have these inspired words about presumptuous additions to the fullness of Jesus that subtly and even unknowingly undermine the profound work of Jesus in our lives. And we have these words so that we might be more faithfully, singularly minded about Jesus himself. And so I'm praying for us and I'm praying that God would grant us a sweet spirit with one another. A spirit like Paul's, consider how tender he's been with this church. He has a chapter and a half already behind him of speaking of the glorious gospel that's growing throughout the whole world and in them. And his great encouragement at their lives and their faith and their hope and their love and the firmness of their faith and the good order of their faith. And he has rung loud about Jesus's great work and all that he's accomplished for them. How happy is Paul as he writes? How sweet is his spirit toward this church? This is a topic famous for us talking past one another. So we wanna slow down and think and give one another room to confess sin and explore the possibility that we've sinned and explore the possibility that we may be in the sin and then to forgive one another. So let's give ourselves to good listening and generous hearts and open conversation in our shepherding groups and in the halls and in our, 
in our homes. Paul is addressing a thing common to man and needful for every church, every church to stare at and consider when they come to this passage. Let's ask ourselves, am I like Paul here? And how am I like Paul here? Paul, who is lovingly guarding a flock, he's alert and perceptive about how Christ's centrality and preeminence and work can be undermined subversively in a local church. How the growth of the gospel in the world can be stunted as churches are thrown into confusion by Satan's schemes among them. How am I like Paul here? How am I like the first readers? They were not the problem, by the way. They were firm in their faith and in good order, but they were vulnerable to offers of other paths that sounded Christian for Christian living and life, but were not. How am I like the first readers? Or how am I like the judgmental in this passage? The one disqualifying others on account of standards for which God is not disqualifying others. And maybe you're really in this category and maybe you have no filter. I'll pray that you get a filter today. Maybe almost any question that comes across your mind, you wanna answer right, wrong, or this way or that way, or better or best. And always the maximally imaginable best scenario becomes the right possibility and now the rule for everybody, which is terribly presumptuous, terribly proud, and assumes way too much about your perspective and perception and way too little of God's wisdom. Maybe you're in and out of each. Sinners and processes, we all are. Many of us are in and out of each of these categories. And sometimes we've grown with respect to a number of subjects, but there's this one over here that we're, we're all teeth about and we know we need some help with. And we've seen ourselves and others grow and we're in process. May God do his work in all of us. I'm excited for this. And I'm praying that God will strengthen our singular focus as a church on Jesus Christ. So we're gonna come at this with six questions today. The first one's hanging over me right now. Six questions today. Six questions and six answers as a kind of foundation for what's to come. Six questions whose answers we'll hear repeated in a number of ways across the next few sermons, but which I'd like to collect in a bag today. And then after this sermon, we'll work our way in a few sermons through these texts in three, three parts. Uh, so let's begin. First question. How does add-on Christianity work? How does add-on Christianity work? Well, there are various definitions of what we might call legalism out there. My kids are learning math. So let's do some math this morning. In short, legalism adds. It's all about addition. And let me get precise about this and then preciser about this. More precise, (laughs) not preciser. It adds standards to God's acceptance in salvation that are not required. Adds standards for God's acceptance that are not required by him. Anywhere from a full-blown works salvation, like the rich young ruler in the gospels. I'll make reference to some of these moments and elsewhere in scripture, and then we'll pick them up in greater depth in the next few sermons. 
anywhere from full-blown work salvation or an addition of a work for salvation like the Judaizers in Galatia requiring circumcision for justification. So it adds standards for God's acceptance and salvation that God has not required. Or it adds standards for God's pleasure in the Christian life that God has not given. That's what we have here at Colossae. Paul gets as sharp as humanly imaginable in his language in the book of Galatians. He is not so sharp here in part because the problem is not so infectious at the moment at Colossae, but I take it as well because the requirements are not perhaps aimed at justification, but at sanctification in the Christian life. But it is what we might call add-on Christianity or legalism nonetheless. Or let's say a third dimension of legalism or expression, it adds too much strength to a topic of too little theological consequence or scriptural clarity, thereby compromising our grip on the main things. It puts something that is down here in importance and attaches way too much importance to it and puts it on par with other essential things without which you lose Christianity. And by putting it in that top tier, it dilutes our grip on anything in that top tier. Now, let me offer some clarifications that may be helpful. Legalism is not obeying Jesus real hard, okay? So if we love Jesus, we'll obey Jesus. It is not strategies for avoiding sin and temptation. That's just smart. Legalism is not a bad attitude. I promise it often comes with a bad attitude, but it is not always just a bad attitude. Legalism is not family rules like curfew or community rules like gotta have a lid on your coffee in the auditorium. Legalism is not carefully formed or strong political convictions. Legalism is not someone feeling strongly about something that they believe scripture to teach, although it could be. Legalism is, on the other hand, being really passionate about the external obedience of others to Jesus without a corresponding passion for those same people to know the love of Jesus that alone compels obedience. It wants everyone uniform and in, in line. Legalism is attributing to God standards that he did not give himself and it presumes that we are wiser than him. Legalism is the prohibition of something's use where God in his infinite wisdom and goodness has only prohibited its abuse. Legalism is community rules that are made or knowingly allowed to feel like God's rules. Legalism is political convictions that do not immediately derive from scripture that are held over others as the only way to be in favor with God. And legalism might be someone feeling strongly about something they believe scripture to teach if they don't even really look at scripture to see if it teaches it so clearly. And they're unexamined, which means that it is a, an opinion on scripture held by other means. And legalism is taking what may be a good idea with a good argument for this or that specific external practice 
something you put in your mouth, something you put in your ears, something you put in your body, your hands, your eyes, and making it a godly argument and holding it over others when God has not. Something for which Jesus did not go to the cross and die. Legalism adds that in making these additions, and this is the sneaky part, it actually subtracts. Did you notice that at each turn in our passage, each of the three parts, Paul stops to give his rationale for why there is a problem here. And he speaks with reference to what is lost in Christ. We'll explore each of those arguments over the next few weeks. When the Pharisees added to God's word, what did Jesus say? He said, you make void the word of God. As you add to the word, in order to ensure that you will keep the word, you actually cancel out the word. We'll return to that later as well in another sermon. By adding to their own tradition and human rules, they subtracted from the voice of God. But it's after it adds and subtracts that it actually multiplies. It actually multiplies. Don't worry, I'm only so good at math, so this is only going to go so far. When judgments are being issued on account of standards outside God's word, the spiritual atmosphere of a church is transformed entirely. Follow me here. Judgmentalism is like a gas that goes into the air that causes people to set their attention on the thoughts and the approval of people that are looking at them instead of God. After all, there are things that God has not said that they need to be kept. So if you can't trust the word, you'll need to make sure you're trusting the right person. And you'll make sure, need to make sure that you understand what the right people are thinking about you. And this air of judgment oppresses you until you actually turn and become judgmental yourself. As you work hard for the approval of men, you expect approval. And then you in turn becoming an approval arbiter. Meanwhile, like a spiral, the attention of God's people turns from the thoughts and the approval of God to the thoughts and the approval of their fellow man. And in the process, it weakens our capacity as a church for hearing and obeying the voice of God when we hear it. Because what really matters is someone else's voice. And that's what's taking up all of our ram. The effect is ultimately a thankless people. It's a people that know how and when to look thankful, but in the car or in the hall or in their head are only acting. You wake up one day and a church that was happy and joyful and thankful to the Lord and in the Lord is now high strung, tightly wound with fists clenched around things and at one another. A litigious environment over externals God gave, but with attention to the letter and not the spirit of the law or over externals that God never gave, but that men think are good ideas nevertheless. Not only has the problem multiplied in the people who have been taken over by it, but the people actually multiply the problem. They multiply the lines. They make one line because it seems wise. And it turns from uh, best practice and 
some wisdom to a rule. And when people begin crossing that line, another line is added to protect the previous line. And before too long, you have eight lines and no one knows what God has and hasn't said. Legalism doesn't present itself as adding extras to Christianity. It presents itself as rightly expressing Christianity. And it comes with confidence, it comes with reasons, and it comes with anecdotes as to its wisdom. But that appearance is an illusion. It gives you one thing and it takes everything because it takes the place of Christ in the mind and the imagination and the attention of the people of God. And it leaves you feeling condemned for something God never said. It adds, it subtracts, it multiplies, and at that point, it actually divides. It divides Christians and churches. And that's a bit on how add-on Christianity works. Second, where does it come from? Where does it come from? From where do we get this tendency to litigious measuring standards religion? Well, it comes from the human heart in the first place. Paul calls it in verse 23, self-made religion. And in verse 20, religion that follows from human tradition. The problem at Colossae is an old problem and it goes back to the garden. The snake came to Eve with the suggestion that God was not good and that he had not told the truth. He subtracted from the word of God. Surely you will not die. And what does Eve do in response? Well, she answered the serpent's negation of God's word with an addition to God's word. God told us not to eat from the tree or to touch it, which God never said. She answered the serpent's rebellion with a form of human religion. And may I suggest that when the serpent in his rebellion is tempting and taunting and prying and prodding and pulling at us, that we are always awfully tempted to create rules in addition to what God has said in order to protect us from breaking his word. Innocent enough in a degree, and yet born out of a heart that was not thankful to God for all that he had given She answered his rebellion with a form of human religion. We can do three things with God's word. You can delete it, you can twist it, and you can add to it. And that's what happened in the garden, and that's what happened with the Pharisees, and that's what's happening here at Colossae. It comes from the human heart and a propensity to mistrust God. So it comes from humanity and the human heart. It also comes from the world. It says it belongs to the elemental spirits, the elemental principles of the world. We can call it the cruelest form of worldliness. See verse 20. It's worldliness cloaked in, cloaked in spiritual garb. And it sells Christianity and then it, te- it sells itself as Christianity and then it sneaks Christ away from you. The elemental spirits of the world refers to the way that the world thinks about its problem and its need and its destiny and its answers. It's an old way of approaching human change. Ironically, we can be the worldliest. Hear this, friends. We can be the worldliest at times in our greatest and strongest and most noble feeling efforts to not be 
worldly. Elemental principles of the world. Third, what does it feel like? What does add-on Christianity feel like? Well, if you're a legalist, you may or may not feel like one. There's the self-conscious legalist, the person who knows exactly what they're doing. For example, Abe Stratton this morning in my office, who looks at me and says, Trent, your slacks are tucked into your sock. I know exactly what he was doing. He was judging me for my dress. And I untucked my, my pants. I'm just a little ahead of everyone else in style. I appreciate it. So you may not know you're a legal. You may know you're a legalist. You may be a self-deceived legalist. And that's most of the time the case. The person who has, a, has concentrated so hard on the law, concentrated so hard on the law that they have drifted from the lawgiver. Over other ideas have been suffocated out as they can't remember a different way of thinking. And this should humble us all. Well, both will feel at the same time reassured and restless at heart. They're working their plan and they're working it hard. And yet the spirit cannot rest for it is always set to the work of being good enough for God and others. That in itself is an important goal, but without the proper motive and heart under it all, it becomes an impossible burden. That's how a legalist will feel. And they're to be pitied. We are to be pitied when we fall into this. And if you're around a legalist, you'll feel judged. Let no one pass judgment on you. This doesn't mean that every time you feel guilty or wrong that someone else is a legalist. Oh, you're just a legalist. I'm going to have my affair. No, you're crazy. And they're seeking to honor the Lord by loving you with the truth. And it doesn't mean that every time you feel like someone's judging you, that they're actually judging you. I've known folks entrenched in sin felt like everyone was judging me at church. I'm like, it's, it's totally in your head uh, because you're walking in sin. Just because you feel judged doesn't mean that you're being judged. And you may feel judged for other reasons of insecurity, maybe Maybe you have been judged harshly by people before and and you would be tempted, maybe understandably, to read that on others. Be careful with that. Just because you feel that someone's judging you doesn't mean that they are. But if you're around a legalist, you'll go ahead and feel judged. You'll feel like their concern is for the rules you keep more than the relationship you have with your ruler. And if it's a matter of keeping Jesus's word, it's okay for us to help one another and care for one another to keep Jesus's word but never apart from desiring people to know the love of Christ, which alone compels that obedience. And if you're a new believer or a believer in need of encouragement or a suffering Christian, you may feel through the eyes of others, the judgment of God, and you may be tempted to join them as a way of resolving that terrible pressure in your spirit and I caution you against it. That's what add-on Christianity feels like. Let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one disqualify you. Feeling of disqualification and judgment that doesn't come from God, but from man. Fourth, why is it so alluring? Why is this so alluring? It wasn't big in its influence at Colossae yet, but it was big in its threat. And that's why Paul writes, not to a church that has bought in, but to a church that needs to stay the course and not buy in. Why is it so alluring? 
It's by nature deceptive. It has the appearance of wisdom, he says. It often looks like it's after the right things. It's after the indul- stopping the indulgence of the flesh in verse 23. It looks like a helpful bonus. It often feels necessary. It looks like extreme commitment instead of compromise. And extreme is always better. And we love to be told what to do. Maturity is hard to quantify, but it, it allows us, this approach to Christian life allows us to kind of quantify it. And it's hard to argue against. It's hard to see its damaging effects. Strong personalities are insisting on these things and issuing judgments if you don't come along. They create inner circles that are hard to resist. And maybe it's not an inner circle just in a church, but the whole church can become an inner circle against other churches. You can tell by how they talk about other churches or expressions of Christianity. There's a curious lack of celebration of God's gospel work in other places that cuts against the grain of Paul's exuberant joy in the gospel's spreading work and the confidence that God is at work in all kinds of places where his gospel is treasured and heard and received and kept. A spirit of judgment means more people fall in line, which creates a crowd and with it the feeling that it must be the right path. And ultimately it's alluring because of human pride The spirit of judgment in the room is like air to human pride as you fall in line and then climb and then prove yourself within that environment. We like to be rule makers like God. That's a little bit of why it's so alluring. Fifth, what should we do about it? What should we do about it? Well, in the first place, don't legitimize it. Don't legitimize it. Let no one pass judgment on you, Paul says. That's different than giving people space to obey their consciences and not running roughshod over people who have consciences, however weak, that may be wound more tightly than yours. We'll deal with that subject a bit in due course. But Paul tells even those people in Romans 14, if you're familiar with that passage, whose consciences are more sensitive on some things perhaps about which God has not spoken specifically about. He even tells those people not to level judgment against others whose consciences are more permissive within scriptural bounds. This, in effect, taking God's name in vain by attributing to him words that he did not say happens when those with more strict consciences absolutize their consciences and level judgments against others. Romans 14 will command those not to issue judgments. Ephesians, sorry, Colossians 2 is how to respond when they are issuing judgments. The passages fit together. We'll look at that more later. We should accommodate the weaker brother, but we should not tolerate their judgmentalism when they start hanging their standards over the others in a church in God's name. So don't legitimize it. We have an obligation to that in care for one another. And don't ignore it either. That's not what that means. Don't ignore it. Paul didn't ignore it. Paul gives us reasons not to accept their judgment. And they need those reasons as well. They need instruction in Christ and in the word. And it's okay to say that. We get our authority from the word of God. We're not lording it over them. We're instructing one another as we all do in a variety of ways with the word of God. 
Paul writes to those who aren't legalists, but who are vulnerable to it. But he indirectly does speak to legalists. They're hard to ignore, but it's often easy to want to ignore them. And we should not. After all, like so many things, with some things, you leave them alone and they aren't that much trouble. A weed, for example, you can take care of it later. Or at least I'm happy to take care of a weed later. My grass grows about at this speed. I've got about two spots in my backyard where something else is growing at about that speed. Just leave it alone. The kids will get it or I'll get it with the lawnmower later. Some things you can wait on. Some things you probably shouldn't wait on. And it depends on you know, where you're at. A backyard is different than this really nice restaurant that a gentleman in our church took me to a few weeks ago. I was in the restaurant. Oh man, um, there's a lady next to me over here and a brick wall and the biggest cockroach you ever saw, I'm telling you. Unless there are a bunch of them around here like this, it was, it was like that. Just walking down the, the brick wall and then onto her chair and then down the chair and then up her back. And I called the server and I said, ma'am, there is a giant cockroach on that woman's back right there. Uh, and, and the server says, oh, that's why that's ta- that table's getting up. And sure enough, over here is a table with five people standing up, um, being moved. There's a problem at the restaurant with cockroaches. Those are awfully big. How did they get that big? And they're not alone. It's been perhaps neglected. It's called an infestation. I won't tell you where it is. There are worse examples, but that one came to mind. There's no inspector, friends, that will come down and shut down the church. Oh, there is. Jesus closes the doors on his churches sometimes. Sometimes he lets things blow apart and the doors get closed. And that's his judgment on a church. But promise, I promise you this, that where there is legalism, there is a spiritual health code violation that threatens to shut the church down on its own. And we dare not ignore the problem. And the effect will be people stop inviting their friends to church because they're not sure what conversations are gonna happen in the hall about things that their unbelieving friends would rightly think are nuts. And those who visit won't come back. And those who grow up here may abandon the faith and the legalists eventually lock arms even if their issues are diverse and form a faction and a church splits. It's not to be left untended. It's textbook. And so it's appropriate for us to ask ourselves, even if we're not sure, friend, might what you're saying be too strong? Might you need to put it this way? The opinion is fair, but you're stating it in such a way that makes it a matter of sin for someone else when I don't believe God has spoken to this. Friend, might you be in violation of the very thing that the Apostle Paul was addressing in Colossians 2? Friends, we have to know this passage. We need this passage. This is needful for the church and for its health. Which leads me to my sixth question. How dangerous is it really? How dangerous is add-on Christianity really? It's just extra rules, right? Isn't it kind of like extra credit? Not like adultery or lying, which are clearly sinful and destructive. They're just picky and pressuring people because they love the Lord, right? 
Well, I'm not discrediting the possibility and the reality often that the person is a believer or that they have love for the Lord. But let us make no mistake. This thing Paul is addressing does threaten to unseat the firmness of our faith that he has been celebrating in this book. And it can undo us in two ways. It can make us rule keepers instead of Christ followers. And since extra rules have been added and since some rules have been elevated to primary importance, it can mean that some give up trying to hear God's voice at all. They don't become a rule keeper. They think, how could I ever know when I'm right and when I'm good with God? And what a shame. It's a danger to the firmness of our faith. It's a danger to the substance of our faith, the very sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ. Notice three times we're referred to the way in which Christ's fullness is denied by their suggestion. We'll get into this over the next few weeks. And it's not that there are some ways to add to Christ that as long as the person isn't proud or okay, it's that in the things that he's talking about, the very additions in themselves emerge from and arise out of human spiritual pride and then feed it, and then fuel it. And it also threatens to compromise the gospel's growth in us and throughout the whole world. As we start listening to men's voices, the church is thrown into confusion and off our mission. As Christians are tug of warring about things that God has never spoken to us about instead of engaging in the spiritual battle for souls of our neighbors and the men and women in our community that are lost. Splits are always complex matters in a church. And Satan throws a church into confusion by many dynamics, including, yes, the sin of leaders and including communication dynamics in a large group. But often at the heart is a strident and strong and uncompromising stand on things that mean very little from God's perspective. And when a church splits, it is at times a sign of spiritual victory when a people has decided that this thing must be. We cannot let go of this when orthodoxy and the gospel is at stake. But it is often enough a sign of spiritual failure that everyone has become terribly, terribly distracted. And in those cases, it's good when the cross comes down off the church. Now, let me close by speaking to three different types of people. There are more out there, plenty more. I don't have the wisdom to perceive all of them but the three different types of people. First, if you're a legalist, a judgmental person, and you like it and you don't plan on changing, Jesus says, woe to you. You tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and you lay them on people's shoulders and Jesus has not. How presumptuous. If you've come this morning and you're realizing that you've got a problem with this and it feels like a problem or you're entertaining it as a problem, praise God that Jesus offers himself to all those who recognize their need. Hear his words in Mark 2.17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you have a sick feeling in your stomach, that some of your greatest passions as a Christian may be for things that God isn't deeply passionate about. And that sick feeling in your stomach is a good thing. Uh, Praise God for that. It means that his spirit is using this word that is here by God's gracious purposes to address that very thing in you 
and in me. We've all got it in some measure. And now third, to those of you who have had a bad experience with Christians or the church, and maybe you're here, but you don't profess to be a Christian and you've got your reasons. May I speak to you? It may be, I don't know your circumstance or reasons exactly. It may be that your aversion to Christianity is not really in itself an aversion to Christ, but an aversion to the very things that Christ himself was made angry about. Please don't confuse your historic interactions with this or that Christian or this or that experience in this or that church with the Lord Jesus himself, who is correcting his church even through his word as it is preached wherever it's preached, and me and us even now. And turn to him. If you have felt the burden of being a performer for God's favor and have not been pointed to Jesus Christ who performed perfectly, who lived a righteous life, that God provided his only beloved son who would fulfill the law because he loved you so much and that his son would be put to the cross to take all of your trespasses away so that your record of debt, which you carry around and which feels like so great a burden, may be nailed to the cross. That is the very point of the cross of Jesus Christ. And it is the cross before which we live and for which we ought to live. And it is the cross that we have to offer you, not a list. And that cross, oh, it will change you. Jesus, when you receive him by faith, does spiritual surgery on your heart. And as he was dead and raised, so you die to your sin and you're raised to what? A new life. And when you go home today, read chapter three, because it's all about how our lives are changed and how our lives actually change. Oh, we change and live a different way as Christians, but we live a different way for particular reasons and as those tied to a particular foundation, who's Jesus Christ. And we offer him to you for salvation and for the transformation of your life. Maybe you felt the burden of performing for God's pressure, favor, and maybe you've rejected Christianity for another system of moral accomplishment. You're a legalist in your own right. Well, to all of you and to all of us, Jesus says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Don't be restless, rest, come, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we give you great thanks for a great Bible. And we give you great thanks for this passage of scripture. And we thank you that these letters that we have in our Bibles don't come swinging out of the gate like this, but that passages like this come to us after long and lofty and rolling and soaring and beautiful descriptions and reminders of Jesus's incredible work for us and all that he has done for us. And so as he is filled with the full deity in bodily form, so we are filled in him, our all-sufficient savior who takes all of our sins away and who has accomplished great triumph over the spiritual forces and over Satan himself so that we need nothing. Father, joined to him, let us not be those who think we or even desire to be left unchanged. May we be filled with the love of Jesus this morning in order that we might be changed into his likeness with a little more with each day. It's in Jesus' name we pray all of these things and for his sake, amen.